It's the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with legendary Yes guitarist Steve Howe. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight is enshrined with his band Yes in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he's considered by many to be one of the greatest guitarists of all time. From his group projects to his solo efforts, he's given the world an incredible gift with his music and skill. Here to chat about his incredible career, as well as the classic tales of Yes Tour, which is making a stop right here at the Mobile Sanger Theater on October 13th, is none other than guitarist Steve Howe. Steve, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, David. I'd like to start somewhat at the beginning of your relationship with the guitar. Um, what originally drew you so magnetically to the guitar as opposed to perhaps maybe some other type of instrument? Um, yeah, it could have been um, perchance that my my parents had a lot of 78, actually, of um, Les Paul and Mary Ford. And uh, they were sensational records. I mean, they still hold up today. So by the time I was 10, you know, I'd heard these records quite a bit. And I didn't even kind of realize that also uh, they had Tennessee Ernie Ford records with two great guitarists on it, Speedy West and Jimmy Bryant. So, you know, it's my parents' fault, really, I think. they um, There was so much guitar, but at the same time, of course, in London, uh, you know, in, in the begin- by, the, by 1960, there was so much um, impetus on rock and roll. And, uh, you know, people like Chuck Berry and Bill Haley. And uh, it, it, it was, a, you know, it was whipped up a, a storm with me, really. And I just loved the guitar. It was the era, of course, of the guitar instrumental, too. So it couldn't have happened at a sort of more, you know, quintessential time. I believe uh, I read somewhere that the first electric you owned was uh, a Japanese guitar. I, I, I don't want to mispronounce the name, but I want to say Gaiatone. That's right. Um, there, were, there were two make there were two make names on a guitar. Um, Hank Marvin of the Shadows fame with Cliff Richard. He before before he got his Stratocaster, um, he was playing one of these guitars. So it, 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 it was weird. Uh, there was a kid in my my street. You know, wanted to sell his electric guitar. You know, and I had just a cello guitar. So the first electric I bought after about two years of playing was a guyatone, but they also called Antorias as well. So, I mean, but LG50, I think it seems to be the name. And yeah, it was a very small guitar, very small. The body was actually really titchy, had a bit of a fender, one-sided headstock. And two very, you know, kind of noticeable gold-looking, plain, you know, plain gold pickups. But it did have a sort of stratty, stratocaster sort of twang about it. So... But it was the first guitar I could get my hands on that also came with an amp. So this one came with its own kind of amp that uh, went with the model. I think so, you know, I had a guitar and an amp and all I needed was a volume pedal. Now, I I knew I needed a volume pedal just intrinsically. There was something about the way pedal steel players played and I didn't really know what it was. But I knew that, you know, if I was going to play a guitar, I, I needed to control it in some way. And the only thing you could get at the time was a volume pedal. So I thought, oh, I could get one of them. So, but the other thing you need is a tuner, but they weren't so available at the time. You know, you used a pitchfork or, a, you know, a, a you know, a tuning thing. It's all very crude compared to, you know, the digital tuner of today. But everything was simple then, and it was great fun, you know. And uh, yeah, guitar and amp, and I was set. Is there any chance you still have that guitar? I have one of those. I have a guitar the same, and I've had it for a very long time. But I'm confused, as many things were after psychedelia, because I definitely had it before psychedelia. I did stuff to it, like I put cardboard on it, painted cardboard, and I, and I kind of psychedelic it up a bit. And then I, I really can't swear if it's the same one, but it actually might be because there's a there's a there's a a missing bit on it. And that seems to keep telling me that maybe it is the original, but why I would buy another one. I don't know when I was already progressing into far greater guitars. So yeah, there you are. Um, when you went to pick your next guitar, um, what drew you to the Gibson ES-175 that would become such a big part of your story? Yeah, there was an interim purchase. Um, I got a Burns I don't know, dual, sound, dual Sonic, I think it was called, Duo Sonic, had two pickups, and a, I think I had a tremolo arm. Uh, it was a British guitar, Burns were a British guitar. 
So, uh, but I don't know. I never got off the ground with that guitar for long. So you're right. It came around to uh, Christmas uh, uh, 1959, and, and I'd kind of pleaded with my parents that I really needed a really good guitar. I mean, you know, not a Burns and not an Antoria, but something like really good. So I was pretty pushy, you know, after only playing, you know, uh, uh, no, I'd been playing, actually, I'd been playing for um, for five years by then. So I put up with the Antoria and the Burns. And then um, when it came to my um, 17th year, yeah, I wanted to get this uh, this wonderful guitar. And I said, well, how much is it? And I said, well, it's 200 guineas, which at the time was a currency that doesn't exist now. It's like a pound and a shilling, you know, mm -hmm. times 200. So like, well, 200 guineas. So I was prepared to pay the installments on a couple of years, what we call higher purchase. I can't remember what you call it, but credit, you know. Like layaway. My dad put down an amazing 40 pounds on this guitar. I mean, it was really amazing. That was a ton of money at the time. And I guess they'd seen me play in a couple of bands and they thought I had some potential, you know. So they said, well, as long as you pay the installments, you know, we'll, we'll buy it. So we went to the guitar shop and they didn't have one. I was like, well, you haven't got an ES-175D? They said, no, no, we can order it. It'd be in a couple of months. So I was so desperate for that guitar, I was prepared to wait. So I waited. And then when it came, of course, I was thrilled to bits. And it became, uh, I mean, I still think it's one of the most beautiful electric guitars ever made. But when I got it, I got home and put it in the corner and like just stood there like, just sat there looking at it like, wow. But, you know, it had iconic kind of shapes about it. You know, not everybody was playing one. In fact, really, nobody was playing one in the in the popular music era. It was, it was really was jazz guitar. And I had pictures of Wes Montgomery playing it, Herb Ellis, uh, Jim Hall. Everybody played this. Well, 175. See, the D is for the double pickup. I knew I wanted the two pickups. So uh, I hope this isn't getting too technical of anybody. But, you know, the... The, the, without the D, it's it's purely a jazz guitar because you only got the front pickup, which is that lovely warm sound. So I'd seen lots of jazzers play, and a guy called um, Judd Proctor, who who many people might might remember if those uh, as uh, uh, have the years I do. He was a guitarist. He may have even been Ronnie Donegan's guitarist, or he was a solo guitarist in his own right, and he recorded um, a few records which showed his his skill. So. There he was, great shape, great thing. The only thing I didn't know was, you know, what was it going to sound like in, in rock? But I didn't kind of care. You know, it was going to be my guitar, and, and and I got a Fender amp sometime after that. I had Vox for a while, and that was really great. I mean, the Vox amps were terrific, and so were the Fenders. So once I got kind of got something that really could make a noise in a club, in a pub, you know, in a small theatre and the venues I was playing, you know, I could uh, I could crank it up and get a good sound. Is it true you slept with the guitar while on the road when you were like worried about the area you guys were staying in? <laughs> yeah, I have to confess, it's partly through its own through its own security. Yeah, I would offer as my <laughs> claim. Um, yeah, it was a weird thing to do. I was pretty, you know, I think it was in New York. I think it was when Yes came to play their first show with um, Jethro Tull, opening for Jethro Tull. But for some reason, we went to, well, there were reasons. We went to New York, and at the time, we were actually terrified by New York. You know, we had a fire station next to us, which seemed to erupt with sirens every couple of hours. We were trying to sleep. It was hot. And uh, there was some very dodgy people out on the streets. We weren't used to seeing people like this, hustlers and bustlers, you know. So that night, one of those nights, I don't know, I just, you know, I guess I'd been practicing on it, put it in my bed. I thought it was the safest place for us next to me. If they're going to get me, the only way they can get that guitar is to get me first. So I was looking after it. Yeah, it's quite a funny story. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of a story the legendary Al Cooper told me mm -hmm. uh, on the show uh, about a guitar Jimi Hendrix gave him. He mm -hmm. eventually had to sell it. I think because his apartment kept getting broken into because people thought he had the guitar in there. And so he just sold it, let it be known that it got sold, I guess, so that it wouldn't yeah. be an issue anymore. Don't come to me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so your time in Yes is rightly enshrined in the annals of rock history. So I was wondering, what was your first impression of that first session 
with the guys in Yes. What was your memory of that first mm-hmm. that's the session that's kind of stayed with you all these years? Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's it's pretty powerful because I didn't really. I mean, yeah, I was going. I was take. I was open to offers. So when they said, "I oh, come down and audition for Yes," I mean, I'd heard of this band. You know, I had a reputation. Um, I didn't know that Chris was the same ba- the same bass player was in the group Sin that I had opened or played with on stages. So anyway, so I I go down there and um, I had a very powerful impression. It kind of started like almost like backwards. I kind of went when I heard them playing in the room and they, they were jamming and we started to play something and I heard Bill playing and I kind of went, wow, that's 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 the kind of drummer I'd kind of like to play with. And then I look at Chris, and he's like all over the bass. Really hot bass, you know, Tony Kaye's got this wonderful Hammond organ sound. And then suddenly, you know, John opens his mouth, John Anderson's, you know, the voice, you know, of, of Yes in the 70s, so much 80s and things, but 90s. So basically 2000s. So John, John's voice, you know, so it was a collective power, if you like, but uh, it kind of triggered in, in the sort of from the ground upwards kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I was well impressed and I thought, well, you know, get my foot in the door with this band. It's the kind of band I was looking for where I felt, you know, possibly we, we were equal craftsmen in our skill. We put in, you know, I put in 10 years, you know, on the guitar to, to find that spot where I was at that point. And, and and it was really a question of you know did they like me you know and I, I loved a quote later that came out that Bill thought I was a bit bit of a hippie you know and uh, that was no secret and yeah. um, but they were too but Bill was most probably a little bit of a straighter guy than than some of the other guys were and uh, but I, I I knew that oh, I sensed that if if I got into this and helped to make this great you know then. You know, it, it might be it might be a big thing. It was a good gamble to take, and in fact, you know, at first there was a small, um, you know, small weekly amount which impressed me. <laughs> you know, because I was, you know, quite honestly broke. But you know, I was I was just getting by on the breadline, and then, uh, and, and but I also had a son, my first son called Dylan. So I was already a father. So I I wasn't just thinking about me. I was I think having. Dylan and all of our kids has kept reinforcing the idea that, that I'm not really doing this for me. You know, I'm alone. I'm doing this, you know, because I love the guitar, but I'm doing it also because it's a way of, you know, putting, uh, you know, bread and a uh, house, in, you know, around my family. How else would I support, uh, you know, the, my loved ones? So, yeah, I, 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 it was uh, it was pretty important that there was money. But, you know, lo and behold, like most things, a little while later, it stopped, you know, and we were out touring and we were starting to write the Yes album. And uh, the manager came came by and said he was quitting. Uh, there was some argument he'd had with Atlantic or something. I, I mean, Atlantic were going to drop Yes if, if the mm. Yes album hadn't, hadn't uh, been a success. So I don't know whether he, he was like... So for some reason or another, you know, he quits. Mm. And, um, and uh, that disenabled the sort of financial... Uh, I'm most probably he walked with some money. And, you know, it's a terrible time. But it turned off way, the faucet. That it was a kind of um, reinforcer also of our determination because because you know we had to make the money work. You know, and so it meant when we got a gig, you know, that we actually split the money <laughs> after the gig. So you know, these were these were early days and very tough days and uh, very very much breadline reality sort of days, but. You know, th- that's what you have to do. You know, you have to give your full commitment. Uh, speaking of the Yes album, I mean, w- one of the all-time great, uh, greatest, in my mind at least, uh, what do you consider to be your um, biggest or greatest contribution to the album? Was it uh, a lyric or a riff or something, some some songwriting idea or something else entirely? No, really. I think it was more about me as a guitarist uh, and you know, an ideas person, you know, yeah, songs, I had songs, you know, I had some songs, eventually John and I started writing together a lot more, but on that album, the collaborations were a little bit more cut and dried, you know, sure, I wrote Clap and uh, helped in parts with Yours No Disgrace and and Starship Trooper uh, and most probably a few others, but basically um, John and John Anderson, Chris Squire had already 
formulated the kind of position of strength of, of the songwriting. So I wasn't, it wasn't like I had to, but I did want to contribute my songs, yeah. But in the other thing I could contribute was my guitar approach, you know, like what happens in the middle of Yours and No Disgrace is a guitar break that I had kind of like designed, you know, as we sat in the room. Guitar takes over, it goes, okay, you stop, right, so I was kind of like able to arrange, as all the band were at the times when they needed to step it up, you know, if it's a keyboard position or drum position, bass position, everybody had ideas, you know, and that was the great thing about it. So you never had an idea without somebody else saying, oh, yeah, but if you, but oh, yeah, but if you change, <laughs> there was always more ideas. So uh, the S album was really an arrangement experiment, you know, where we took some very simple ideas and built them out into the much bigger affairs where we're, you know, there are very few introductions that are shorter than a minute or so, you know. Oh, yeah. And so we we basically started to, I think, put the, the, the blueprint down for the fragile, close to the edge, tales and topographic oceans. We, we kind of put the blueprint in place then. And, uh, you know, who wrote the songs was less important. Although, of course, you, you, you knew you wanted to be credited and, and paid, you know, on, on your writing. But it was very much a, a, a hit and miss thing. Where that, where that kind of lay. But the important key was to get this band to sound different, be different. I think it was the originality of the other guys. The point I might have missed when you asked me previously about what did I think about the guys. I think one of the most important things, really, was that they were original. You know, that, that, that there wasn't a guy there who, who was, you know, doing the same old, same old. You know, they all had this streak of originality, which was terrific. You mentioned yours is no disgrace, and we were talking about song credits. As I recall, that was credited collectively. Mm. Um, was that based more on collaboration, or I'm going to use the word seg segmentalization? And I only ask in that way because, based on the structure of the song, I can almost see different member band members bringing different parts and then figuring out how to transition them. But then at the same time, I could also see how it could be more of a traditional team brainstorming effort. Which mm. more was it, or was it a combination? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it was you know how how ideas got developed was 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 uh, was part of the skill that we were uh, using. But I mean, I think that was credited to the bank because it was a fair credit. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it may be unfair in some respects that uh, John gave up maybe a little bit more of the, the lyric writing than he did. But in a way, what Yes did was we broke tradition with this old theory that there's 50-50, you know, 50% of the credit goes to the, the, the writer of the lyric and 50% goes to the writer of the music. You know, that we, we, we all found that a bit kind of unrealistic, really, because the success of the song is based on, you know, a, a quite a few other ingredients that, uh, that go towards it. So, yes, consider themselves, we considered ourselves to be uh, breaking with that old tradition of the old songwriter, you know, 50-50 lyric thing, and just throwing it out in the open saying, look, here's 100%. And on that song, everybody did stuff. You know, everybody had ideas which, which brought it to fruition. It wouldn't be that. But we didn't do that on every song, you know. But we did find, uh, you know, it's kind of confidential. I'm not going to tell you much more. But later on, we found ways doing similar things to albums that might look like, you know, John and I wrote lots of it. But in fact, what we gave was we gave back to every every person in the band for their contributions, for their smaller contributions, other than structure. Normally, songwriting is about structure, you know, the, the structure of the music, the chord sequences, and, and also the lyrics. But in yes, we, we we had to show appreciation in different ways because you know John and I might come in with a song, but by the time we worked it up with the guys, you know people have put in their ounce of you know sweat into it. So we would we would uh, we would credit that uh, off the record if you like, and and we we would share in a group credit. But we did it on the S album literally as a group credit, and other times we did it more. In a in, in a different method, but we 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 always paid respect to to the talents of the band when we could. 
You also mentioned Starship Troopers. Uh, to this day, still a fan favorite, certainly one of mine. Truly uh, a multi-layered masterpiece. Mm. Um, is it true that, uh, and I read this somewhere, and that's why I wanted to ask you, that the Disillusion section originally came from an earlier Yes song. I think maybe, I think it was called maybe For Everyone, and that the Worm section came from yet a different song, well, like from one of your prior bands? That's right. I, I can't vouch for the whether that, as far as I, if you, when you were talking, then I was thinking you were about to say that fundamentally that section was written by Chris, and that's what I would say. You know that seg segment. He didn't have the. He didn't imagine it was going to have country pick and guitar, but you know when I played the chords, he said these are the chords. You know, there's four chords. You know this. Um, it was just E D G A. You know, and, and I made them six, which gave them a kind of a. A happy kind of feeling, you know, even though it's so sort of disillusioned. But mm -hmm. basically, um, it, so there was that. Um, so that that's an example. Yeah, as far as I knew, Chris wrote that bit, and I gave it a bit of a country picking thing. And the band stopped playing, and and it was just a relief moment, if you like. So it was understated. There was no no other orchestration except a guitar, which which was you know suited me fine being the guitarist. When when we go to what happened to Worm, yeah. Back in 60, 68, 69, you know, I was in a band called Bodast and we really struggled. I mean, this was really one of my worst struggling periods ever, really on the breadline. And, uh, you know, we got dropped by this label who who had signed us. And basically, yeah, we recorded a song called, it was actually called The Ghost of Nether Street, but I think it ends up being released called Just Nether Street. But anyway, it was really called The Ghost of Nether Street. And in there, it, I go do, 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 over my own chords, and that was part of the structure I added to a to a song written by um, uh, uh, Clive Skinner. And basically, um, what happened was before I just before one of the reasons I joined Yes, and I was available was that they axed us and they dropped the recording. So I imagined, uh, and anybody would have thought that I was never going to hear those recordings again. Well. Um, it was partly through my own uh, work that, that that people did hear them, and this is why. So we're doing, you know, the Yes album, and I say, well, I got these three chords. You know, it's a it's a G with a D root, you know, and it's an E flat with a B flat root, and it's a C with a G root, and so it was. Oh, that's pretty cool. And they start playing, and they go do 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 do, and I play that theme, of course. You know, thinking, okay. I wrote that, and now it's going to be with Yes. So I was happy. But in 79, in 78, I was on tour, and I, I got a very dramatic message. I got a telegram that somebody had passed away, and it was mm. Clive Skinner, the or Maldoon. He had, I think he screwed up his second name and called himself Maldoon or something. But I think he, his name, anyway, he passed away very tragically, very lonely, and he was a terrific singer and writer, and he really felt disillusioned. The world had turned their back on him you know and yeah. i had as well you know i'd rushed off to yes and you know by 78 you can imagine yes we're a pretty big band in the uk in the world in fact but and, and clive was was kind of lost nowhere so i wish to hell i'd stayed in touch with him but um as it happened he passed away so then i thought you know just out of respect for clive you know so i called the other guys in in the band um dave and bobby got in touch with them and i said how about we you know, we get those recordings and we release them, you know. So somehow we managed to do that. Um, the label, anyway, maybe I shouldn't tell you too much, you know, background about it, but somehow those tapes were procured. Yeah, because my friend Keith West, who is the singer in Tomorrow, was the band before Bodas, which should never have broken up because it was a fantastic band. But basically, he was a producer. So I think over the years, he'd acquired the rights to those recordings and didn't know what the hell to do with them. And suddenly I called him and I said, I want to put this out because Clive's passed away. And I think, you know, people should know what a great singer he was and all that. So, of course, as we're doing the tapes, I got together with Gary Lang, who's a top engineer in, in the UK. And we went to um, Psalm East, um, which was a studio, yes, was going to be using soon on, on, on drama album, actually. So I'm there with Gary and we mixed the whole album in a day. Wow. I mean, it was only, uh, I guess it was a four track album, uh, yeah. recorded in there. I think it was a four track album. So pretty easy to record, uh, sorry, remix a whole album in a day. If it's only got four tracks, you haven't got much to play around with every song. 
on on there was the ghost of Nether Street, you know. So of course it starts out do and I'm thinking, oh wow, everybody's gonna like, you know, people <laughs> will kind of connect with this. But um so in a way, that's a pretty long version of the story, but I can't explain it in another way. It did come about in the end being heard by the rest of the world because I wanted it to be, um, but not primarily, nothing to do with Nether Street, really, but just because of Clive, you know. And, just respect. Uh, so there you are, tragedy and triumph. They all happen at the same yeah. time. Uh, before I move on to Fragile, I'd like to ask about, I've seen all good people. Um, uh, it's been a favorite of mine since the, the first time I heard it. Um, what's the story behind the creation of that song? And when did the Spanish Laud guitar come into the picture? Um, okay. Well, I mean, we had the song. Um, as we do in the S album, we, we seem to have an intuitive idea that not every song should just be played, you know? And I think most probably Bill was quite like that, you know? Not every song should just be like treated the same. And that's what we were trying to do, find different ways of treating it. So basically, um, uh, every song got a chance to be recorded in somewhat of a way. If you take event, adventure, you know, that, that's, not, that's not like we just saying, let's just play this song, you know. It was a very careful arrangement. And delightfully, some, somehow it came about that the idea to do your move was not for us to play it together, you know. That in fact, we do a production, what's called the production job on it. We'd set up something, and then we'd overdub the parts and get them really, you know, pristine. Get every focus on one thing at a time instead of Eddie having to record bass, drums, and guitar, which was usually what we did at one time. Sometimes with a keyboard at the same time, or sometimes a keyboard and a bass and drums. But you know, sometimes all of us, you know, and John doing the guide vocal. So that's a big task. So differently on your move, we set up a pulse, you know, and. Um, that was that was created like it was in the those days, but was was with a loop tape going across two machines, and on it was just Chris and Bill going boom 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 boom. In fact, it was boom 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 boom. You know, two beats slightly different. So anyway, we had the loop guy boom 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 boom. So I went out and I had that guitar. It's actually called a Portuguese twelve string guitar, and um, I'll be playing it. You know, on this tour as I do, and basically that. Um, what I, what was required was that I had to have a concept of how many times everything would go round, and when there would be a chorus. So, in other words, when the guitar wouldn't keep doing the verse, but it would like kind of do the chorus approach, um, and you know, put a load of that down for a few minutes on my own, and uh, maybe track it as well. Um, but anyway, so the Portuguese guitar sounded the, the guitar sounded great. The boom, 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 and then I was doing all this. So we had basically a structure that was really nailed down, you know, pinned down to the ground, as we say. It was tight, it was beautiful, it was clean, and the band hadn't played anything yet. <laughs> so then we started, John puts a voice on, you know, and I never wanted to put another guitar on it, you know, because there was not going to be like this guitar comes in. It's like, so um, because that was all going to happen later, you know, the delayed approach, you know, when you get to, you know, the next part of the song. We uh, we then went to a live band, you know, playing live, you know, playing in the studio. So basically, that that's the story. It was a production job, and you know, we 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 did that with a new and die. You know, we did the same thing. We didn't stand in the studio for hours, you know, <laughs> arguing about how to play it. We we set something in motion, like agreed an arrangement. There'll be so many verses, and then something will happen, you know, and then we'll take a. So that was another tracked up kind of guitar. In fact, that I did track that up with several guitars. And um, so that that that's a, a lovely approach that, yes, cleverly didn't didn't overuse it. But, you know, sometimes we're not playing in, even back then. You know, we're not playing all at once. And it does allow Eddie Offord at the time, who was our co-producer, and us as co-producers, and the musicians to kind of um, to kind of develop it slower without having to um, you know, get it, get it collectively. You know, we, we, we could focus on it individually. Whose idea was it to incorporate uh, John Lennon's lyrics, all we were saying is give peace a chance into the background? I can't guarantee who thought of that. Um, some of those little ideas, sometimes re it really does get forgotten who, who actually thought of them. Um, so an idea like that is, uh, is kind of haunting. I think we were kind of worried that, the Beatles might be offended or they might, you know, hit us up for some publishing or something. 
and um, but we didn't care. It, it seemed so right to us. So in a way, we were joining the crusade of the sixties, you know, in the hopes. I mean, I could say something now, but I mean, you know, I would almost tire hearing myself say it. That there are so many problems which we've known about for so long that have not been fixed. One has to say, is it too late to fix anything? You know, because mm. all we are saying is give peace a chance. You know, after you know, the, I don't know. Perhaps I better not start. But but the but you know, it's like climate change. It's exactly the same. It's down to the people to change. Not the not the politicians, it's the actual people. It's us, you know. Get a grip. If we don't take it on board, how do we expect politicians to make a half baked attempt at getting us to do what we should do? But there you are. You know, we were talking about war, which is also happening today, and we've also not the the human race has not learned that war is bad. It, it's destructive. You know, so, I mean, you know, give me a break. All we're saying is give peace a chance. But that was back then, just like Joni Mitchell said about the spots on the apples. And another guy I quoted one night on stage is called Alexandra Humboldt. Bet nobody's heard of him. 200 years ago, he went to South America and he saw them cutting down the rainforest. So what did he say? 200 years ago, he came back and reported to Europe that we're destroying the planet. Wow. 200 years? 200 years. Jeez. I mean, look, it's not the politicians' fault. It's not the police' fault. It's not the army's fault. It's nobody's fault but the human race. And we've got to take a grip. We've got to do that ourselves. We have to be better. You know, and it's not about the politicians. It's not. It's about the human race actually waking up one day and saying, we're going to stop doing all the bad stuff and just do the good stuff. Um, coming off that, I was going to ask Please. you one other question, but that being as that was kind of heavy, I'm still going to ask the question anyway uh, about, uh, you know, I've seen all good people. I mean, is that song as fun for y'all to play as it is for the audience to hear and sing along with? Because you got the hook, you got the did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. And mm. all everybody just loves singing that, you know, it, mm. it brings out the little kid in everybody. You know what I mean? Well, there's the two parts. Yeah, I mean, you, you're kind of partly referring to, you know, the first part. Yeah. But the second part, which is, you know, I've seen all the people turn their heads. Yeah. You know, basically, yes, almost missed the boat sometimes in the 70s to, by forgetting that we're actually fundamentally a rock band. Look at Roundabout. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. You know, you see, we got all the trademarks of being a rock band, but we kind of brought a little twist to it, which was our skill, you know. But, you know, so that that's really the, 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 the beautiful thing about some of our music that it emphasizes in, in a lovely way that we're actually still got the rock mentality. And I value that very, very highly. And that's why on, you know, some of our recent records, you know, we've done stuff like um, uh, Mystery Tour and we did Living Out Their Dreams, which, which are fundamentally rock music with a few twists, you know. And I think we should be proud that we're still able to find that because, you know, you don't want to get too esoteric. You don't want to get too arty. You know, you get kind of overly, you know, you know, kind of weighty and Wagner-esque or something. I'd rather be Vivaldi-esque and not Wagner-esque. You know, I'd rather be bright and happy. And I think one of the trademarks of Yes, the great Yes parts, is that we're not, we use minor to really push it home because basically we're a very major kind of group when you look at yours is no disgrace you know the, the the minor chords only come in occasionally with the doom laden you know darkness but a lot of our music it's bright and and i think that's so great like you know what happened to this song we once knew so well you know even if the lyrics aren't optimistic you know the music is you know and mm -hmm. and i think that's that's important that we that we've always been a band that you know, like when you think about the doors, you know, <laughs> come on, baby, love me. It's very kind of minor doors. You know, it's very minor-esque. It's kind of dark. And and I think, yes, we're very proud to be a bright band, you know, a major band. You mentioned Roundabout um, uh, and uh, next album, Fragile. Um, what was the band's first impression of what you and John had been working on with that song? I mean, who came up with the intro? First of all, I guess. Well, I'm sorry, I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm a specialist, if not a maniac, about it, it, beginnings and endings. I've written 
most of yeses beginning and ending. I'm not saying that with egotism, but when you look at it, a lot of the stuff that that like Siberian Couture, you know, exactly the same. I, I do write intros and I love developing outros because, you know, what happens in the middle is anybody's game. But uh, yeah, I've taken control and I did have the, you know, obviously, I mean, like, if you hear me playing on my own, you, you know it, it has to come from me because nobody tells me to play on my yeah. own very often. There's, there's enough of it already, quicker to say. So, but then I believe I thought of the backward piano too because somewhere else, you know, the backward piano had come in uh, in the in the in the um, well backward backward guitar had come in that's right with the Beatles doing uh, George had done some backward guitar and things so I mean backward piano you know and you know we recorded an E minor backwards and the C major backwards and oh but sorry recorded them forwards obviously and then played them back and we all went oh wow that'll be great how do we line it up so Eddie was great at this kind of thing editing and lining up machines. So we got those chords to line up where they where they were uh, on the on the record now, and I mean that 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 again is the originality the band demanded. I mean it's the opportunity for me to bring forward ideas that nobody had thought about. In fact, Roundabout has quite a contribution. Well, I mean my contribution has been partly acoustic guitar, and yeah. I used to worry that people wouldn't recognise who was playing the guitar because it wasn't number one seven five or my other guitars that I used in the seventies. You know my electric work. And and I was delighted the roundabout was so successful because you know there's a lot of acoustic guitar on there, and uh, basically um, it's me. <laughs> but one of the secrets to that sound, if people want to play that intro, is not to use a plectrum because I never do on stage. When I do those intros and midsection and and they're they're with really playing with with my thumb, not with my nail like classical guitarists because mm -hmm. I don't do that anyway because my. My nails are very short and I don't use that approach, even on a Spanish guitar. I play it in a quite a medieval way of um, using my thumb and the, my fingertips, which have to get used to it when they've had a bit of a holiday from it. But um, yeah, so intros, love them, you know, give me, a, give me another intro to sort out, you know, and look at a new and die. I mean, I could go on. Yeah. Look at close to the edge. Day, 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 day. I mean, that was a close to the edge idea was, Totally, we said this often, you know, but John McLaughlin's Marvishan Orchestra were one of the most inspiring groups that, that yes, collectively enjoyed. You know, we all had our favourite things we we liked, but Marvishan was was a wonderful band and we, you know, we were destined to play with them and admire them. And basically we were trying to be a bit Marvishan there by starting with a sort of improvisational feel where it was, what's going on? You know, what's happening? Instead of usually what an intro is, you know, it establishes your attention and draws you in. And we did that in a different way with Close to the Edge. I mean, we had the birds, first of all, going through a, 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 a moog mm -hmm. uh, and then filtered with, you know, various, like, great effects on it. So basically, then we go into hurtling into what sounds like improvisation. And Chris Squire was great here because he said, oh, you can't have improvisation without structure. And I go... Yeah, okay, I agree with that. If everybody improvised, <laughs> that's yes, such a never... bass player quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got to have some structure here. But you know, Chris is so right because sadly, and I say this quite seriously, sadly, yes, we're not really an improvising band. You know, if, if we all improvised, it was chaos. You know, I mean, well, I, really, and... that's why there's no recordings anywhere of us doing that because we weren't any good at that. But what we could do is we set up some structure. That structure could come from me or could come from anybody. Get a structure, and then, then yeah, I, I'm 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 an open book. I can improvise more or less on anything, you know, whether it's one chord or or, or sixty five chords. I can do that. Uh, there's something I do, and and many musicians can do that. Not everybody does it, and in a way, Chris wasn't so much of an improviser. He was very thoughtful, and he wanted structure, and he that's what he gave to Close to the Edge. So going on behind what appears, you know, to be. Uh, a lot of crazy noodling for me is 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 a structure that's based on, you know, the riff that came that came out uh, of Close to the Edge, which was quite complicated, and eventually we all play it together, and that's the marvelous thing about structure. You know, it brings you together, but it allows also to be an invisible backdrop to something else. You know, another song off Fragile with a great guitar intro, um, and ironically, it came on my car last night. Um, was Heart of the Sunshine. Um, and oh, the wow. Sunrise. Yeah. Sunrise, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, wow, I had forgotten how cool mm -hmm. the bass playing is in that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just 
it's it's almost funky. I mean, it's yeah. It's, oh yeah. Well, a couple of things happened there. Um, Chris Chris wrote that riff. We had that, and everybody thought it was great, you know. But we said, "Is it a bit uh, King Crimson?" I sure it's not King Crimson, because King King Crimson did have riffs a little bit like that nail biting kind of edginess that that Fripp was writing and things. So anyway, it, it, it passed the test. This was yes, because what yes did was um, we got tired of playing the riff. We said, well, where's the riff going? You know, what are we going to do with this riff? And um, so Bill, uh, Bill Bruford uh, verbally improvised. He kind of said this, he kind of leant off from the drums. He said, well, why, why don't we play something like, blah, 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 blah. you know, give me something like that. Blah, 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 blah. Give me something to do here. You know, I'm just, you know, he didn't like playing straight. He wanted to burn some phrasings. So, it's too long to be too long ago to be sure, but I I think I got together with him. Okay, you like that, dude? So between Rick, me, and everybody else, you know, we 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 got that hook hooky bit that 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 ties it together. You know, so periodically, and very few people that other people that play ever get a couple of the beats right or the way that we feel they're right because those are not in time you know no. i've heard people play them with a rigid beat behind and that's wrong but you got you have to know that phrase and the band collectively would would learn that phrase so that, that was the beautiful thing. You know, I was right. We were all at the same musical potential of the skills and and the use of technology, you know, the use of really good sound. I mean, Chris had that Rickenbacker. I mean, I swear by Rickenbackers. Not because I want to sound like Chris, because I can't, but it's one of the greatest bass player, bass, bass yeah. guitars you, you can have. You know, sure, Fender Precision and Jazz, they're all over the world, but uh, uh, all over the place. But the Rickenbacker basses are, 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 have a phenomenal character. And let me tell you something about that very brief. When you play them on their own, and you say, is this, is this sound? Is this all right? And yeah, I think it's all right, boom, boom. And then you put it with other instruments. Something really magical happens. And this happened to Chris. You know, he put his Rickenbacker with the other instruments, and it sounded even better. Than it did because you know on on their own they don't always sound that impressive but they sound very impressive when they're surrounded by other good sounds. Um, are there any songs from the Yes album and Fragile that have made it onto the into the current lineup for your current tour? From from what albums, Fragile and uh, Yes album and Fragile. Yeah, we do some of those. Um, you know, we don't. I mean. I, I, before a tour, we never tell anybody what we're playing. And then when we do the first night, everybody knows what we're playing. But well, now we you can look it up some. online too. Yeah, it's online. But then we drop some of the songs and then we say, no, nah, that's too much. That didn't, really, I, I, it wasn't fun, was it? And we actually boot a few songs out quite, quite recklessly, but on, on agreement, on the, on the terms of agreement. Yeah. Or we've got too many, you know, because we, we know what too many is, you know, or, or, or we can't get the sequence. This song doesn't. So, yes, we, we do songs from the S album and uh, from Fragile. Yeah. We're not doing anything close to the edge because last year we played the whole album. And most probably uh -huh. the year before we played some of it and we, we, we do and die. So basically, you know, we, we give songs a rest and then we bring others to the fore. Well, and you're and, and we'll talk about your 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 newest album shortly, which features the steel a lot. And you, mm. and, and you and I, I think that comes to my mind first as um, uh, one of the first songs I heard you use the steel on. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be playing the steel a lot on everything else, I guess. Well, I'm not playing it much on like stage now. I do one song really? that really features it. Um, but uh, on, on the new album, I do a lot of steel on, yeah. on, on mirror to the sky. Yes. Um, so, uh, I'm, where, where are we going? Um, uh, what did you ask me just then? Well, no. I was, I was mentioning that cause you said you're not going to uh, play anything from close to the edge. And the yeah. one thing that everybody I think thinks of when they think of that album that they kind of look forward to maybe right, is, still. and you and I, yeah. because of the steel playing, but then I'm That's thinking, right. okay, well, if you play some of the other stuff, you got to steal there. Yeah. Okay. So just to, just to go over that again. Yeah. Of course, Mirrors to the Sky has a lot of steel and yeah. so does the quest. But yeah, I love the steel. It's a, it's a special voice, and right around the time um, of uh, of uh, fragile and uh, close to the edge, 
started getting more interested in it. Obviously, what I'm doing there is kind of really quite fundamental, but it, it, I moved on very quick because by the time we go to close um, going for the one, I've got a whole song where I only play the steel guitar and that is going for the one. So that basically means that I got really interested in it, learned a lot about it, did a lot of practicing, a lot of recording at home with the steel so that I could be much more proficient because, you know, Speedy West and um, Santo and Johnny and, and uh, you know, just so many great steel guitar, pedal steel and steel guitar. Now, this isn't bottleneck, you know, this isn't like slide guitar. This is actually playing a guitar that's, in front of you and i only play guitars with legs now i used to play them when they're just like sit on your lap that's no good um so what can i say i love the steel it's a great voice uh and you and i was a uh, kind of using it more as an effect than than really an instrument which you know one one can do that too but as i said by the time i got going for the one i was like okay this is it and then awaken on the same album had pedal steel as well so in those intervening years you know only about three or four I really did put a lot of uh, work in. And, and sometimes I thought I'd give up guitar for a year and just play steel guitar, you know. Um, and that that was a time when my album called Quantum Guitar came out. I think it was 1996. And that was going to be only steel on the whole album. Mm. And I thought, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't do that. But, um, you know, so basically on there, I play Sleepwalk, you know, which is a, a great steel guitar tune anyway and the collector on that album is particularly nice for for steel features it's all steels basically besides some other so yeah the steel huge instrument with me it's my second lead voice you know i mean guitars you know acoustic electric you know it's always going to be a mix of those but uh outside of those two it's a steel guitar of um, the first seven yes albums and and by the way i asked the same question when i interviewed your prior other bandmates, Steve Hackett, about his time with Genesis. Oh, yeah. um, which one of the first seven Yes albums do you think has aged best in your mind? Well, I mean, I think there's two that have aged exceptionally well, you know, and that's Close to the Edge and Drama, you know, because Drama's, a, you know, was a refined version of Yes that, that appealed to some and, and not to others at that time. But over the years, it's gained a kind of strength, not only by us playing the whole thing, on stage in our album series tours that we do every now and again. And we were doing last year, of course, with the Close to the Edge uh, album series. So basically those albums um, have have a lot of solidness. I mean, you know, we lucked out having Eddie off, and I, I give him credit where it's due. He had a, a Brit engineer skill and he was leaning production, you know, so he was helping us pick pick takes. But, he, you know, I, I watched him, I've watched all the engineers and producers I've worked with like a hawk. You know, I see what they're up to and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I see, I see. That's a good trick. And he was great with editing, you know, and that's the, fundamentally in the early years, there were only a few things you could do with sound, you know. Um, and, but one of the things you could do that was very, very historic was, was editing. And therefore, you could, you know, develop, uh, you could do, rearrange the song, you know, much like we do today with Pro Tools. You could rearrange it by editing or you could perfect the takes by by editing between different takes. And that was seen to be, you know, but so Eddie's skill comes through on, on Close to the Edge. But there again, what happens on drama is totally different because there you've got a different kettle of fish altogether. You've got Hugh Padgett who went on to be, uh, you know, very successful with Phil Collins and Genesis and everything mm -hmm. like that. But also Trevor Horn as a singer and writer, fantastic writer. Um, so he comes in the band and we were all getting more and more interested in how things sounded and what you could do. And, you know, so the teamwork on that, although Eddie did record some of the backing tracks for three weeks, you know, we didn't get on. There was no way we could do the whole album with Eddie, unfortunately. Um so that that was a rekindling and a hopeful rekindling of our relationship that ended somewhere in the mid seventies with, with uh, Eddie uh, on being you know having a lot of fun on stay, on on tours, and then it broke the pattern of us being able to work in the studio. So, but drama had that teamwork. I mean, the the, the amount of input on those records. You know, I, I've shown that I've had, you know, production ideas all the way through playing the guitar. But I mean, Trevor 
you know, established himself as a producer, and then Hugh Padgham did as well. So we had an awful lot of help on that album, and um, uh, you know, it, 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 light close to the edge. It's pretty outstanding. I I want to um, move on and, and talk about some of your more current work in the tour, but before I do, I just don't. I I feel like I can't skip over Asia. Um, given that the debut album was literally the number one best-selling yeah. album in America in like 1982. How does Asia happen? I mean, how do the planets align to bring you guys, to bring you guys specifically mm. together? Mm. Well, I don't usually start by giving this answer, but it just so happens that the manager of Asia was the same guy who managed Yes. And, and Yes kind of broke up, you know, after drama and it was managed by him. We call him BL. So BL, you know, BL and I, we did stick together, and I don't often give him credit for this, but we stuck together and did a lot of things, you know, not only Asia, but then GTR, and then ABWH, and then the Union Tour. And after that, yeah, we burned each other out. But basically, BL and I, we had a stop. I mean, they, people thought I was in cahoots with this guy. No way. <laughs> but he did cut, He did find ways forward, and... Asia started out by him saying to me, you know, I got a call from John Wetton and he's not doing this, he's not doing that. And he wants to know, you know, if you're doing anything. So I said, well, no, you know, because this is after Yes broke up. And, um, you know, I saw, saw a solo career coming forward. And then and then he said, well, get to, do you want to get together with John? I said, yeah, I'd love to meet the guy. So, you know, we, we met and we just jammed really for a couple of days, you know, him on the bass, me on the guitar, and we just kind of grooving sharing ideas and thoughts and then before we knew it we were starting the grand a band so so brian had that um there he is bl had that kind of skill where he, he'd find ways to keep me occupied and and for him to manage the out, outcome and that was the same with steve hackett with gtr and uh, then abwh of course was a you know like a, a, a another a, another version of yes yeah, sadly without chris but uh, and then the union tour came along, and there were loads of managers, you know, too many managers. But uh, it's definitely something not to underestimate in your career how important and effective somebody like that can be, you know, because a lot of this is down to you know my guitar work, my writing, and, and the skills that I can bring. But there again, that all goes to waste unless doors open, you know, and. Uh, but a lot of that has to be from the musician himself. It can't be, I mean, I could have turned down seeing John Wetton, you know, because, oh, no, I don't get that, you know, but I didn't. And therefore, you know, it's taking the right opportunities yourself, but also, you know, having a little help by people opening doors. Yeah, the window's got to open, you got to decide to go through it. That's right, yeah. Um, I remember all the buzz and everyone calling Asia a mm. super group. Mm -hmm. I mean, did that did that put any additional pressure on you guys to deliver the goods? I don't think so. At the time we were we were thinking that, you know, we'll take it all. You know, we'll take whatever they give us. I mean, if they call us that, let's move on. You know, uh, I mean, in a way, it, 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 it stroked our ego to think that we were a super group. But these kind of cliches, they they sometimes do become an incumbent, you know, and you know, you struggle with them sometimes, or people think that you struggle with them, when in fact, you know, like I say, it's really just take it all and, you know, kind of mix it all up together and, and see where you get to. And once again, it all comes down to what the musicians themselves actually do achieve and then how they sustain that. And the biggest disappointment, of course, we didn't. We didn't sustain it. We didn't hold it together. And it became a sort of, you know, uh, one-legged operation. So basically... You know, it, it doesn't matter how much luck you have. You can screw it up yourself if you want to. And yeah. that people do, you know, and we've all been subject to that. Uh, getting back to Yes, you mentioned Union, um, which was the next album after Drama uh, for yourself. Uh, mm. I find the juxtaposition of those two titles to be too good to um, mm. be coincidence. May I presume someone had that juxtaposition in mind when naming the album? What union? Yes, <laughs> having the prior one being drama and the band having, yeah. you know, yeah. done its thing. I don't even think I can talk about union, you know, uh, hardly at all because it's a very complex proposition. You know, what was what was set out to be, and uh, what it was set out to be, and what it became. 
and how it became that. I mean, it's almost like a comedy of errors, you know, because, you know, I'll, I'll just do it very, very quickly. You know, it was going to be ABWA's second album. We were making the second album. I mean, that's all we were doing. It seemed like harmless enough. We're down in the south of France. We were recording this album and that was it. You know, it seems life was very simple. It got so complicated when one of the band decided, oh, we have to be called Yes. And it's like, why? You know, ABWH, if you established. So we went through this cycle. Oh, it was it was like, you know, digging up a city and rebuilding the same city that got buried in the mud, you know. <laughs> it was a, it was a pointless exercise. It didn't do a lot. The, the album got really mixed up and crazy, and I was very unhappy with it because masquerade you got a grammy nod for that yeah i did and and, uh you know i recorded that myself uh and uh, provided it for free and uh got no production credit i don't think Mm -hmm. on it at all and so really i i got nothing other than the pleasure of giving you know giving out music you know that that was the what the best i could do And, and so there were really good people behind it that wanted wanted things to happen in that way but uh, yeah, it was a sort of nightmare of un- un- unprecedented start. A lot of trouble was went through, but not a, not a lot of results actually came back. You know, so I'll leave that topic. Well, there's there's so much yes history we can talk about, but I'd love to move on to your current album, Mirror to the Sky, which has come out to I mean, fantastic acclaim from fans and critics alike. Um, is the 13 minute title track your favorite song on the album, or is it something else, and why? I mean, no, I love mirror, the song. It has fantastic transitions. No, Mirror to the Sky as a song, yeah, that does represent, uh, you know, it does represent the whole album. It tells you much about the whole album. And and the way that the collaboration and the, the opportunism that has gone on with these last two albums, you know, with, uh, with Thomas Weber at the label, you know, there's been a kind of beautiful uh, uh, symmetry going on where, um, you know... We've got tremendous freedom and we've found ways of working that we never would have envisaged, you know, and particularly with me producing it. Uh, and, and But, you know, without other experiences in that, I just put my name forward because I said, you know, having somebody inside means we don't have to kind of explain to this other person who doesn't get it what we're mm-hmm. trying to do. You know? So, yeah, uh, it was, it's been enjoyable. But that, that song pretty much, I mean, you know, um, circles of time you know i mean that we love we love the album very much you know and particularly unknown place you know is another track that so it's it's been weird you know we we kind of put out a little more music than than we need to each time thomas has always felt yes fans appreciate getting some lengthy pieces you know and uh that's why we get the bonus cd which isn't really a bonus at all we worked on those songs as as much as we did all the others, and just selected how to present them. So yeah, we're we're very we're very happy with this this uh, relationship we've got with with each other and the songs, and then Thomas and and Sony. It, it it's been wonderful. And we mentioned this bringing out the steel for a few songs mm. on this album, all connected being yeah. one of them. Um, mm. When I heard it the first time, it, it to me it kind of had. A little bit of an old school yes sound to it. Um, mm. Was that something that that you guys were going for, or, it, or was it just standing on its own and it well, just happened to come out that way? Or am I reading I too much we, into it myself? No, I hope we never can lose that. I mean, if we lose that, we really screwed up. So in a way, I think it is part and parcel that you know it's been a bit of a cliche. Many people have been saying you know the future has to be well in car design. I was just thinking. You know, they say this a lot, you know, when you get a new car, they say, oh, we've taken a lot from the from the older model. And in a way, I think, yeah, I think, yes, do that with our music. We we can't lose all the great, you know, contributions of other people. You know, uh, we're doing it now, but but their contributions have, have stylized. Um, it's raised the bar, you know, it's, they were part of the bar raising, you know, uh, 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 personnel. Who, who made this band what it is today and what it was then, you know. So, you know, we've had a, a tremendous career and, um, you know, I think everybody who's been part of Yes has been proud to be part of Yes. And, and that certainly applies to me. Is there, what song, whether it be mm-hmm. yours or somebody else's, mm-hmm. gives you the absolute most joy to either listen to or play? Um, 
What you mean uh, concerning the Yes repertoire? Presumably. Could be Yes, could be anything. Is right. there a song in particular that gives you, right. the, you Steve Howe, mm-hmm. the most absolute joy, most joy? Well, I don't know that things are so static, that uh, things mm-hmm. are so fixed. I think that things are more fluid, and my views about them change. So when people used to ask me about what my favorite song was, I'd always say, I haven't got a clue, but then I'd say the first one that came into my mind, you know, which, which is a good idea because it might have been one of the what, what, near the top of the list, you know. But I don't think I've I've got a, a, an absolute uh, answer for you, other than I could have a current one now. And if I was to say that, I might say turn of the century because when you've got a song that's difficult to play as that, it's such a challenge. And you you rise to it. And in that song, you get shades of, you know, when you and I, you get shades of wondrous stories. You get shades of also, and also in the second half, you get shades of the kind of multi-complexities that we use, where the singer's over here, and the drums are over here, and the guitar's going, I mean, how we dream that up, I've got no idea. So I enjoy listening to that because it's very soothing and it's very beautiful. And, uh, you know, but it, it, it does demand that you listen. You know, it isn't a, a toe-tapping song. It's more of a, 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 you know, a mellow song. So if I can, I'll pick a mellow song. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for joining us and, and all of your time. I mean, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Well, nice talking to you, David. Ladies Rainer. and gentlemen, Steve Howe. Thanks now. See you later. <laughs>